much praise team and also for this uh, drama that we were able to celebrate the freedom we have in Jesus. What a reason to celebrate, amen? amen? We are free in Christ. I pray you've had a blessed week. And as we said earlier, God is good and he's always good. Even when it's raining every day, God is still good. Even when there's hurricanes that are maybe approaching, God is still good, right? amen? amen? No matter what's happening, God is always good. And it's all because of Jesus. And I wanted to share with you just a thought. We, we've been talking about renewing relationships in this series. And, and actually in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, it says, being, in the found, being found of the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death of the cross. As we read this chapter, this verse, we, we, we learn something about what it means to follow Jesus. As Paul said in the next chapter, as Ted read, that we count all as lost. No matter what we've gained in this life, all is counted as lost for Jesus. The Bible says that we are called to have the mind of Christ. In this verse, we find the hope of salvation in Jesus, but also the key to human relationships. It's having the mind of Christ. It's emulating him through his Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. The greatest key to renewal is found in the mind of Jesus being replicated in us. Tommy was now retired. He was in his 60s, but he, he told the story about something that happened when he was probably in his mid to late 30s, maybe early 40s. He talked about his experience growing up. He, he says this. He says he grew up not knowing his father. He didn't have a picture of him in his mind. He never knew who he was, but all he knew was what his mom told him about him. His mom would say over and over again to Tommy, you're a selfish little worthless monster of a child, as horrible as that sounds. And she said, and you're just like your father. Man. Tommy says it seemed that the more he thought about his dad and what his mom would say, he said the more worthless he felt about himself. And he says, the more like my dad I became, at least the dad that I had in my imagination whom I did not like at all. On a few occasions, he said he'd ask his mom about his dad, and she said he wasn't worth even knowing because he had never even called him or, or even checked on him or sent him a birthday card once a year. And as he grew into manhood, he says that he became an ugly person. He said that he became what he didn't want to be. He joined the military, and, and for a time, that kind of kept him in check. But he realized that this had affected how he had relationships with other people. It was affecting every aspect of his life. How we relate to one another is also a direct, a direct result, a direct concept that's related to how we relate to our Heavenly Father and how he relates to us, and how we actually view that. How we relate to other people is directly related to how we relate to God and how we believe he relates to us. It's directly related to our picture of this God in heaven whom we worship. You know, many of us have come here today with baggage in our lives because of a false narrative that we have been taught or believed about God and of what we believe about ourselves in relationship to God. But the truth of the matter is, is that as Jesus said in chapter, John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, he says, if you abide in me to his disciples, you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? The truth will set you free. There is freedom in Jesus, as we said earlier, but there's also freedom in our relationships. There's freedom in knowing God. In order to have the mind of Christ, remember this, in order to have the mind of Christ, we must know the heart of the Father. In order to have the mind of Christ, we must know the heart of the Father. If we don't know the heart of the Father, 
will never have the mind of Christ because Christ was one with the Father. We must have an understanding of who God is. Freedom is found in the heart of God. Let's bow our heads. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together today. We thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus. And we thank you that you are our Father. Lord, today as we open your word, as we worship you through your word, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts. I pray that you would reveal yourself in new ways, maybe ways we've seen but need refreshed in, or maybe some new ways we've never seen you before. But Father, speak to us, we pray. Transform us by your word and by your Spirit's power, we pray. In Jesus' powerful name we ask these things. Amen. I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 8, because as we look at the character of the Father, I believe this story in the Bible, which you've read many times, is one of the greatest examples of the heart of God, of understanding the heart of the Father. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Looking at verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, as they always did. And all the people came to him, and they sat down, and he taught them. And of course, this usually happened, too, in the next verse. Then the scribes and Pharisees, they saw he was teaching, they saw he was preaching, and so they found a great opportunity to try to trick him or try to get him in something. And so this was no different. They come to him, and they brought him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in, his, in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Wow. This woman was caught red-handed. As a matter of fact, it was probably a setup. It could have been like one of those Chris Hansen things. It was a setup, but it was all to try to get Jesus. What would he say? If he answered against Moses, then he couldn't truly be who he claimed to be. They tried to trap him. They knew his heart. They knew his teaching. And so they bring this woman, humiliated, before him. There in the ground, probably crying, looking down in all for shame. The view of the Pharisees and how they were presenting this woman says a lot about their view of God. Their view of God was one that many times we have believed in the past, and maybe sometimes we still believe this view of who God is, how the Father is. When we sin or when we mess up, many times we feel that God is the offended party, that he is the one that we have messed up against, and now he is upset. We've sinned against God, now he's offended, now he's angry, and now we need to do something to appease him. We need, like the, like the Pharisees were saying, God demands this woman be stoned. We need to appease God because he has said this. Wow. God is the offended party in our minds, and his finger is pointed in condemnation is what we feel many times. And his anger demands obedience and threats to punish those who fail to measure up. And as we look at this whole concept of this, this view of God, what happens in this, by the way, false concept is that the weight of responsibility to mend the relationship rests upon us. God's angry, and so now it's up to us to mend the relationship. It's up to us to appease God. It's interesting because there's only really two religions in this world. There is one true and there's one false, but there's thousands of iterations of the false one. But they all have the same premise. The same premise is that somehow we can earn the favor of God. That's the single premise of all of the false religions, of all of its iterations, all how they are painted and made and thought and taught. They all say the same thing. But not the true religion, not the one truth about God. We must do something, whether it be self-denial, penance, prayers, pilgrimages, payments of money, fasting, Sabbath-keeping, having the right view of the three Ds of diet, dress, and drums. Mercy. 
And somehow we can appease God and somehow gain his favor. And our goodness somehow prompts his goodness. If we're good, then then he'll be good back to us. Are you getting the picture of, of what this whole idea is all about? Our achievements arouse in God a change of heart. Once he rejected us, but now that we've done right, now he accepts us. Now his heart has changed. Now he's happy with us. In the doing, he sings background vocals to our impressive song. The only problem is our song usually is not so impressive. It's kind of like America's Got Talent. American Idol, what is it about? We just just love hearing the, the horrible singers too. Most of the time our song is much less than perfect. But yet, in this whole ideology... Somehow we become the one who's singing lead and God is the backup singer in this journey with him. But what happens is because we, we see our failures and we realize we can't really appease this God will always be falling short that we become full of despair, hopelessness. The condemnation we feel from sin arises from sin itself. It is wrong and our conscience knows it. And so we're constantly battling against this. And the greater our guilt, the less we see ourselves. And our self-confidence is diminished. We're weakened. We fall into this spin cycle of sin, just like, as we know from the spirit of prophecy, the woman caught in adultery was Mary Magdalene, whom Jesus cast seven demons out. We don't know if it was all at once or at seven different times. But apparently this woman kept falling back into the spin cycle of sin because all she saw was condemnation. And because of that, she saw her weakness with no hope. And she kept going back into it and back into it with no way, apparently, that she saw of getting out. This false view of God is that we see that God is angry, that he's full of revenge and and indignation towards us. But the truth is, is that's not the only false view we can have of God. Because the Pharisees were standing there and they were condemning this woman, but they themselves thought that they had it all together. They thought that they were the ones who really didn't know what it meant to follow God, to obey him completely and perfectly, making laws that weren't even in the word, but making laws that were meant to guard them from even getting close to breaking the real law. But what happens is we have this outward compliance as the Pharisees had, but it leaves the heart unchanged. And somehow, like the Pharisees, once again we expect that God is going to change his heart in response to our goodness, rather us in response to his. And we become self-centered. We fear personal loss and and personal, personal desires take over our lives many times. Which means that we do not really serve him. We're like the older brother in the parable of the, of the lost son who slaves away, who wants what the father has to offer, but wants nothing to do with the father, knows nothing about the father's heart. Instead, we say we slave, we, we labor, but we don't care about the relationship. The only difference is now we go to church and think we're God's faithful people. You know, <laughs> My brother was, was newer in ministry. He, uh, he took a trip to Chicago for a training. And when he went, he was going to stay at a hotel there. He had a convention place where he was going to be having these training meetings. And he didn't want to spend a lot of money on food. So he takes this suitcase, that he had a large suitcase, and he packed it with food. But not just any food, he packed it with canned goods. So... So this is back in the day where you could have like a 150, 200-pound suitcase and you could take it in the plane somehow. Now you can't do that. Now it'll cost you an arm and a leg. And so, so this suitcase, 150 pounds, loaded with canned goods, SpaghettiOs, whatever he had in there, beans, soups. He was ready to eat all week and save money in the process. And so he takes it, puts it in the plane, flies to Chicago, gets off the plane, gets his suitcase, which he could barely move, and he, he goes and he gets a, a cab down to Michigan Avenue. And there he is, about two blocks away from where he really needed to be. And so he gets the suitcase, and he's dragging it down Michigan Avenue. 
slowly, and there is the bus that's going to take him to the hotel. And he's going up the bus step by step. He could barely use He was like deadlifting this suitcase up each step into the bus and finally gets it in there. And he's sweating. He's tired. He's frustrated. He gets it. He sits down in the bus and he sees a familiar face and hears a familiar voice. He goes, Brad, is that you? He goes, yeah. Hey, what are you doing here? It was, it was a guy who was coming from another conference that he knew. He said, he said what's going on, man? He says, you think you're having a hard time. He goes, yeah, man. He says, my suitcase is real heavy. He said, well, why? He says, well, I brought all the food for the week because I didn't have to spend money all week on food. He's like, well, wait a minute. He goes, well, d- didn't you know that their meals are covered? <laughs> He's like, no. N- n- nobody told me that. Just a minor detail. My brother didn't know. Therefore, he had a lot of canned goods to carry around. I think he, threw, he said he threw them all out at that point. He wasn't carrying those things around anymore. But how many times do we carry baggage around in our lives? We choose to, to carry the weight of the baggage of, of sin and shame and guilt. We hold it all on us because of our view of the Father. But Jesus said something different. If we're traveling with Jesus, he says that his burden is not like that suitcase. But he said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. For I'm meek and gentle in heart. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you're traveling with Jesus, you're traveling light. Because Jesus takes all the baggage in our lives and he takes it on himself. Too many times we choose to carry our own baggage that we don't have any business carrying. All the stuff that we hold on to, all the guilt and the shame, all the things that we sometimes feel we have to deal with, we carry around. And it wears us out. When Jesus said, that's not my plan for you. And that's why there's only one true picture of who God is. There's only one true picture. There's a lot of false pictures, but there's one true picture. The only one true religion is embodied in the personified Jesus Christ. As we look at Jesus, in him we encounter a picture of God that is the complete antithesis of the salvation by works view, the pharisaical view. It's the total opposite. What do I mean? Remember in this first false view that God's the offended party. But but listen closely. The reality is, when we look at God's word, is that it says that man, we are actually the offended party. What do you mean? Brian, are you preaching heresy? Romans 8, verse 7, it says that the carnal heart, the heart that's apart from God, is at enmity with him. In other words, our heart naturally is at enmity with God. That word enmity means that we view God as an enemy that he is in opposition to us. And so our heart is in opposition to the God of heaven, to our heavenly Father, naturally. But why is this? It's like the story earlier. Just like Tommy. It's because Satan's been feeding us a false picture of our heavenly Father. And so we shake our fist upward in our hearts against our Maker. But here is the other flip side of the coin that I find amazing. It's something I wish I realized when I was Caleb's age. Is that the weight of the responsibility, the baggage that we carry to try to make things right, does not rest upon you or me. Here is the most beautiful truth, the most significant truth of all of Scripture. Is that this, it's that we may be the offended party, but the weight of responsibility to mend the relationship rests upon God, not you. You can't fix it. I can't fix it. We like to try to fix everything in our, in our lives. Maybe our, our, our relationships here, we try to always fix them. But this is one that we cannot fix. We don't do a good job even in our human ones either. So this sinner's only hope is for God to take responsibility for him to take the painful effort to prove his love and win back our trust because our heart is far from him. God must do something amazing, something awesome, something awful to demonstrate the truth 
of who he is, of his goodness. He must do something to change our hearts towards him. And so he does. And so he does. John chapter 8, verse 6. We begin to see the true picture of God. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, what's he say? You've seen the Father. And so as we see Jesus interacting with Mary, we don't just see a picture of Jesus, we see a picture of God the Father as well. And by the way, when we get to heaven, sometimes we we think it's going to be a little puzzling because when we we talk to to Enoch, when we talk to Moses and, and Joshua, and all the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament, sometimes we, we think we're going to ask them, hey, how'd you get here? And they say, well, it was really tough. It took a lot. We had to do a lot of stuff to get here. We had to follow God to a T. We had to follow all these ceremonies and rules. And we finally, finally made it by the skin of our teeth. But we know that's not the reality. Because then we think, well, maybe they'll ask us and we'll say, well, no, we got here by grace. We got here in a different way. That's not true. Everyone who's in the kingdom of God will have gotten there one single way. It's by his grace, by his unmerited favor. There's not going to be somebody who got there because they were good and others who got there because they weren't. But we're all there because God is good. A beautiful picture of God's grace, verse 6. This they said testing him. They, They asked him about the law of Moses that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the, on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So Jesus says, I'm not even hearing that. He kneels down and starts writing in the dirt with his finger. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he is without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience in the desire of ages, we're told that he was not just scribbling. He was writing down specific sins in the dirt. And when the individuals who were standing by saw what he was writing, were convicted in their heart. And they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. We see a picture of Jesus here, a picture of God taking shape. A beautiful picture of God's grace. God's love and forgiveness towards us is is in his heart, and it's not based on our response or our good or bad deeds. And how do we know this? How do we know? Because Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Listen closely. This is the truth. Again, I wish I knew when I was young, and sometimes I still forget. But it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ does what? He dies for us. He doesn't wait till you get it all together. He didn't wait till you cleaned yourself up. It says, while we were still sinners, sinning, lost, he comes and he dies for us. That is the ultimate picture of the heart of the Father. But God was not, the Father was not absent from Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, that is that God, the Father, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Let me pause there for a second. Remember I said that God is the one who's trying to reconcile the relationship. This verse is very clear on that, that we are far from God ever since Adam and Eve were running, we're hiding. We are at enmity with him because we think he is the enemy. We are afraid through fear or rebellion. Our hearts are away from him. And so God is the one who comes after us. He chases us. He pursues us. He acts towards us to win our hearts back to him. That's what reconciliation is. God the Father was in Christ. He was with Christ on the cross. His heart was right there as well, reconciling the world to himself, trying to win the hearts of carnal man back to him, not imputing their trespasses to them. You catch that? that says about the heart of God? It says that God in his heart is not against you. As a matter of fact, it says that God in his heart has already forgiven you. He forgave you at the cross. 
In his heart, it's saying that, that, that God says he was in Christ, reconciling our hearts to him at the same time, not holding your sins against you. In his heart, he sees you, and he looks at you, and he loves you, and he's not angry with you. And it's committed to us the word of reconciliation, the good news of the gospel. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you being dead in your trespasses, while we are dead, listen to this, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. While we are dead in our trespasses, God in his heart has already in his heart forgiven you. And I know this sounds maybe heretical, but just... Bear with me. Romans, Revelation chapter 13, 8 says that all who dwell on the earth, and it talks about those written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This Lamb was slain not just from the day of Calvary, but the plan of salvation was put in place from eternity past, before the world was even created, as it says in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. God's forgiveness towards us was there before we even sinned, before we, were even, uh, before we were created, before we ever fell. God's heart of forgiveness was always there in Christ Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. So are you saying, Brian, that we don't need to repent and confess our sins? Because that's maybe what it sounds like. In order to understand this a little clearer, we have to understand there's two words in, in Greek that, that mean forgiveness. The first one is charisomai, which is another word for forgiveness and grace, to bestow favor freely, unconditionally, to show forgiveness undeserved, the grace aspect of forgiveness. But the second one is forgiveness, which is the, which is the word aphemi, which means to let go, release, remit debts, or to cancel, or pay in full. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, uses the first. We read that earlier. It says, In you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven by his grace in his heart, already forgiven you, undeservedly, all your trespasses. Charisomai. And then Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, God's goodness leads us to repentance. And what's that mean? 1 John 1, 9 it says this, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive. And that word there is the second word, ephemi, as our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's this all mean? It means that there's two aspects of forgiveness. God in his heart, when he looks at us, because of Jesus, because of his heart of love towards you and I, declares towards us what we call positional forgiveness. God's heart is always in the position of forgiveness and love and grace towards us. But in order for that to be real in our life, in order for us to release our sins to him instead of us holding on to him, there has to be a transactional aspect of forgiveness. And so God's charisomai, his grace is always extended. His forgiveness is always there. But we also need to recognize our sin and say, God, I recognize by faith that you have forgiven me, and I'm giving it back to you. The transactional aspect of forgiveness. There's positional, where God view, how God views us, and the transactional, how by faith we accept what God has done. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace you've been saved, charisomai, through faith, ephemi, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. John chapter 8, verse 11. John chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus, right before that, says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus says this, If you want to know the heart of God, this is the most powerful verse that we can ever remember. Mark it, write it down, remember it. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. A lot of times when we read this verse, we only read that last part, go and sin 
no more. Oh, I see Jesus saying, okay, you messed up, you got another chance, now don't do it again. But the reality and the power and the strength of the verse is not in those last words of Jesus that say, go and sin no more. The power in the verse, the power and the weight of the verse is the words right before that where he says, neither do I, what? Condemn you. And by the way, I didn't see or hear Mary repent before this point. She didn't confess her sins, at least least that we see here. So how in the world could Jesus say, neither do I condemn you? You're guilty, but he says, I don't condemn you. He didn't say, repent of your sins, then I won't condemn you. He said, first, I don't condemn you. Then he said, in light of this guilt-lifting love, go and sin no more. Prior to this, Mary could expect nothing but condemnation, more scorn, more rebuke, But now she sees a picture of God unlike any she has ever seen before. Unlike any she's ever recognized or even heard about. Well, Tommy, from the the story earlier, Tommy has this picture of his father, and, and after a while he finds out some news about his mom, about her life that wasn't so great. And then he begins to wonder if what he said about his father was all really true. And so he, he looked online, he tried to find ways to find maybe where his father was, and finally, finally he found out where his father was living. He was on a farm. A little ways away, he had to fly to get there. But before that, he got the phone number and he calls. And he says, Mr. McGregor. And the voice on the other end says, yes. He goes, uh, this is your son, Tommy. Before you hang up, he said, just give me a chance. He said, I, I know... I know you don't know who I am, we've never met, but I'd really like to meet you. And he was, he, was, he was sweating, he was nervous. And the voice on the other end, unexpectedly to him, said, son, I would love to meet you too. He was shocked. And so he buys a ticket, flies out to a, a place where it was out in the country, and he drove to an old farm. And as he approaches the door, he was nervous. And he knocks on the door, and there was an elderly gentleman hunched over from years of hard work on that farm. And he says, Dad. He goes, yes. He had the right place. And he invites him in. And there's a moment of silence, he says. But, but after a few moments of silence, they stood up. And Tommy extended his hand. But instead, the, the dad reaches over and grabs him and hugs him. But Tommy suddenly said, no, no, this, this doesn't feel right. He backs off. He says, Dad, he said, I appreciate the hug. But he says, how comes you left Mom for that other person? And how comes you never wrote me? How comes you never talked to me? He said, Tommy, he said, I've, I've always loved your mother. I still do. He said, I never left you. I didn't know where you went. I didn't know where your mom took you. I searched. But instead, he said, I decided to stay on this farm until one day, hopefully, I was hoping that you'd come and find me here. And you finally have. What Tommy said is that once he got to talk to his father and meet him, his life was changed forever because he was totally different from all that he had ever heard. His dad was a decent man, a good man. But all he knew before was this false narrative that was fed to him his whole life about who his father was, but it wasn't real. Friends, the most crucial question we can ever grapple with is the picture we hold in our hearts of the character of God and how he views us and how he sees us. It will determine our relationships with other people and how our relationship with God moves forward. If we picture God as simply a strict judge condemning us all the time, we will condemn others all the time. And we also condemn ourselves and eventually we'll be in full-out rebellion. For the first time, Mary's eyes were resting upon the countenance of God. For the first time ever, she saw the Father. The eyes that were sore from the thousand condemning glares, including the one in the mirror, sore with searching to see true love that God wanted to bestow, are now riveted upon the one who could rightly condemn her, but he would not. 
He had every right to condemn her to death, but, it's, but he would not. He says, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because that's why Jesus came. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. And sometimes we stop there, but the next verse is just as important. For he, God did not send his Son into the world to do what? To condemn the world like we usually might think and feel. Not that, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. Jesus did not come to condemn you. God sent him to save you. In order to have the mind of Christ, we have to understand the heart of the Father. In order to have the mind of Christ, we must first understand the heart of the Father. Condemnation perpetuates the sin in the life But God's love, because it does not condemn, liberates us from sin. It frees us. It empties the baggage. It lifts the guilt and the shame and brings healing because of God's amazing grace. I'm from Pennsylvania. Fireworks are illegal in Pennsylvania. In other words, the the ones that we know down here in Florida are illegal. When I was a kid, what we knew as fireworks were sparklers and snappers and those little snake things you light and they make a mess on your sidewalk. You know what I'm talking about? So, so when I came to Florida about nine years ago, it was like Christmas when it came to fireworks. Because I, I remember growing up, well, sometimes one of my friends would travel down south to where they sell fireworks and they'd bring me back a tiny little pack of those black cat firecrackers, and that was like the best thing in the world. And we'd try to blow everything up from apples to eggs to whatever we could find just to see things explode. And our idea of, of, of a projectile was us throwing a sparkler in the air at night. That's about the best we could get. But coming down here, I went to the fireworks store, and I was, I was looking all around. I was, I, was, I was rubbing my hands. My mouth was watering to get some awesome fireworks. And then I saw the price. I was like, man, these are expensive. No wonder, no wonder they didn't come bring too many of these up north. And so I bought a few things. I bought some Roman candles, some of the little ones, and I bought some those little, little bottle rockets. And we head up north for the 4th of July. This is just a few years ago. And so we head up north to my in-law's house. And it's the 4th of July, and I, I told Brandon, I said, Brandon, I got some fireworks. It's going to be fun. We're going to light these off. And it was kind of like contraband, I guess. We crossed the border up north. I'm not sure if we were supposed to have those there. So we, we cross up into Connecticut. We have the fireworks. We have a great picnic. It starts to, to get dark. And I was getting anxious. And I, I grabbed my little Walmart bag that I kept them in. And I said, okay, guys, it's time for the fireworks. So I bring them out. And it was like a kid in the candy store. I, I bring out a little bottle rock. And I have a little bottle there. Light it up. Pops in the air. Felt pretty awesome. Grabbed a little Roman candle. Lit it up. My son was standing over and said, stand back, this could be dangerous. And he starts shooting these little, little balls about 10 feet in the air. A little disappointing, but it was, it was cool. And then all of a sudden, I laid another bottle rock. I laid it down. I said, okay, this is, this is going to be better. This one's going to whistle. So I, I light this one, and suddenly it flies up in the air, whistles. And then suddenly I heard this kaboom. I was like, whoa, what in the world? And then all of a sudden, the, the sky brightens up with the most amazing flash of light. And it wasn't my firework, by the way. <laughs> it was the neighbors. And suddenly, one after another, these enormous fireworks started going off right above our heads. It was the good stuff. It wasn't my stuff. It was the expensive stuff. Maybe some of the stuff you have to ask behind the counter that are not supposed to even be selling. I don't know. But it was the, it was the good stuff. And it was going off. It was like we were sitting at a public event. That's how amazing these fireworks were being shot off from somebody's backyard. And suddenly my fireworks seemed pretty weak. And my father-in-law to this day says, hey, Brian, do you have any fireworks? (laughs) He laughed at me all evening long. (laughs) Just the other day I brought up that bag of fireworks. I still have a bunch of them. (laughs) I said, Brandon, I said, you ready for the 4th of July? He goes, I don't think so, Dad. (laughs) But as I thought about that, I thought about God's grace. You know, many times we think there's a danger 
at making God's goodness and his grace too good. Do you ever feel that way? We feel that if we make it too good, if it sounds too good, if he's too gracious, it might just make some feel that they can kind of get away with anything they want. And so we kind of downplay it. We take it and it's like a little Roman candle shooting sparks up. It's like that little tiny bottle, maybe a little snapper. It's God's grace. It doesn't make a lot of noise. doesn't make a big impact. It's just there. But the reality is just the opposite. God's grace isn't that little, that little firework, that little sparkler. God's grace is loud. It thunders. It booms. It is bright. It lights up the world. God's grace is magnificent. And sometimes we downplay it because we're afraid to make too big of a deal of it. The real danger is not failing, is, is in failing not to share that it's too good. But the real danger is that we don't even come close to its surpassing greatness and amazingness. Without question, there's always going to be those people who take advantage of the grace of God, who use it as a license for sin and immorality. Jude 4 says that, but that's okay, so be it. But the grace of God is what it is. God is who he is. And we don't blame us for who God is. If we choose to rebel against him in light of his kindness, then his grace is not to be blamed. And so I challenge us today to remember the fact, the reality, that to have the mind of Christ, we must first understand the heart of the Father. In order for us to understand and have the mind of Christ, we must understand the heart of the Father and how he views us. God is crazy about us. He loves us. He's not there to condemn you. He's not there to be angry at you. He loves you with an everlasting love. More than anything in the universe. And he's given everything to be with you forever. Just like the prodigal son, if that father is the true picture of our heavenly father, which I believe it is, he doesn't rush out to that son to try to reestablish the rules. He runs out to that son to reestablish the broken relationship. And that's what he wants to do with each one of us today. You may feel broken. You may feel guilty and shamed. You may feel that God is far from you, but he is not. He is closer than you think. He is pursuing you even though we're running away. And God wants us to turn to him so that he can wrap us in his loving arms and encompass us with his grace and forgiveness and bring healing and wholeness to our lives and transform us by that same grace into the people he's called us to be. To have the mind of Christ, we must understand the heart of the Father. Amen. this last hymn, so we're going to ask you to sing, or I'm sorry, to stand and sing, yes. Um, like Pastor Brian said, yes, the grace of God is big, and it's powerful, and it's exciting, so let's sing with that, that enthusiasm and that excitement um, as we sing this last hymn together. <laughs> Right. 
head. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you because we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, from eternity past. We thank you that your grace and your love is not dependent upon our goodness, but it simply flows out of yours. We thank you, Lord, that also that your love and your grace transforms us. That's your love and grace that frees us. Because when we know the truth about you, as Jesus said, the truth will set us free. And so, Father, help us to give you the baggage that we have, that we've brought today, and lay it at your feet, and just release it to you. Our guilt, our shame, our sin, take it and put upon us the yoke of Jesus. The rest that you want to give us for our hearts and our minds and our souls, give us your rest because the yoke you give us is easy. Your burden is light. And we praise you for that. Or may we leave this place with a renewed sense of hope, renewed sense of your grace and your love, your amazing, magnificent grace. And may we sing of it all the day long, constantly, and not be silent. May it be the theme of our hearts, And Father, may we always remember who you are in relationship to us. We thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a reminder, we're going to have some elders up front. If you'd like to have special prayer, you can come forward, and we have elders who will pray with you for those special requests that you might have. We pray that you have a blessed afternoon, and we invite you back at 3 o'clock for Alice Bogus' memorial service. God bless. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next time. Love you.